This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Could years of drought strike India again, bringing famine and mass migration? New science says yes. Professors Gayatri Kathaya and Ashish Sinha explain. NCAR scientist Kevin Trenberth returns to report two marine heat waves going on right now. Endangered tree expert Mullen Rivers has a survey of global trees. Scientists warn almost a third of tree species are in danger of extinction. A quick note, in last week's show, Stanford's Professor Rob Jackson said recapturing the powerful warming gas methane may be humanity's only way to save a livable climate in our lifetime. Then someone blew up two massive natural gas pipelines under the Baltic Sea. Methane is erupting out of the sea into the atmosphere by the ton. Experts like Drew Shindell say the methane is not enough by itself to warm the planet much. Rob Jackson says whoever blew up those pipelines should be charged with war crimes. Radio Ecoshock. Even without climate change, some natural systems are unstable. Long droughts running from decades to centuries were not uncommon in the last few thousand years. They happened in the American Southwest, for example, in Australia and many other places. In the early 1790s, the Indian summer monsoon failed several years in a row. An estimated 10 million people died of famine. Now the Indian monsoon rains have to feed over a billion people. We go to the paper, Protracted Indian Monsoon Droughts of the Past Millennium and Their Societal Impacts. It was published in the Proceedings for the National Academy on September 21, 2022. The lead author, Gayatri Kathaya, is Associate Professor at Xinjiang University in China. Second author is Professor Ashish Sinha from California State University. He teaches big ideas in earth science. My guests, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Let's begin at the beginning. Why did you analyze stone drippings found in a cave in northern India? I'm working in northeast India now for more than a decade. And I have been working in different parts of India, like north, central India. So amazingly, I should say that northeast India site is a kind of a unique site. And we are very lucky uh, to get this kind of location. Uh, there are two big reasons that we call it a unique site. One of the biggest reason is Northeast India has good amount of crust. The limestone uh, crust is there, so we have good speleothems. Good in the sense is this crust system has a high uranium content. And for speleothem business, it is really important for us to nail down the chronology. We have a lot of uh, already a lot of records from different parts of India. Uh, but they are scattered. And the biggest problem and the biggest issue is the chronology. So for an example, if we talk about a certain drought, uh, let's say in 1810, and if we have an uncertainty of 30 to 40 years right there, so it can be anywhere. It could be 1850, it could be 1780s or something. And this gives a biggest challenge to understand how the droughts are and how to identify them. So in this case, Northeast Indian speleothem samples have really high uranium content. This natural uranium 
uh, gets dissolved in the rainfall water and gets logged into the speleothems. And then at the daughter elements of uh, uranium, that is thorium-230, that is what we measure and we try to figure out the chronology. And so far in current uh, our this record, the chronology, if you say about any drought in 1810, the precision is almost four years. So you can just go 1814 or around 1800 or six, something like that. So that's what uh, we uh, we went to Northeast India to get there. Now, for our world listeners, how critical is the Indian summer monsoon that you studied for the billion plus people living in India? Indian summer monsoon is uh, really important for India because uh, it's uh, it matters a lot. The onset and the failure of monsoon in India, it's a big deal there. Uh, the large population, almost more than 60, 70 percent of Indian population today still relies on the monsoon rainfall for the agriculture. And there is a very marginal difference between a bumper crop and a no crop. And that's what deals with uh, is all dependent on monsoon rainfall. So if we look into India, then in different part of India, monsoon is always a part of the ritual celebration to have a good monsoon. And if we look into the instrumental data set from India, which is coming from last 150 years, the observation data set, this data set has uh, really no extreme droughts. We don't see back-to-back three years drought in the instrumental data for last 150 years, and which has really given a picture that Indian monsoon is a quite stable. It's not like a beast behavior. And this is one of the reasons that in India, the stakeholders or the country policies is not really counting on long-term droughts or back-to-back multi-years drought. And that's why monsoon plays a big role, because anything lasting for two to three years can really give a big tough time to the country. So what we are seeing here in our record is, uh, if in contrast to these uh, instrumental data set, we see that there are instances when we really had back-to-back severe droughts. And we are more confident about these droughts because in the past, in the Indian document, historical documents, there are information about droughts. But still, this information is not encountered in the policies today because there is a different, uh, there is a mixed thought about it, whether these uh, famines were caused by the monsoonal drought or whether these policy famines were due to some policies or societal uh, suppress or something like that. So there is not really a robust idea whether these long-lasting droughts, what we see in the historic documented sources, are really, they happened uh, in India due to monsoonal drought or not. So in this way, our record plays a really important role because we have a very uh, one-to-one matching with these historical documented drought sources. We can see that our record is showing the same picture. At the same time, other proxy records like a very popular Himalayan ice core dust spikes uh, these spikes are also similar to what we see in our speleothem records. So this means that Indian monsoon is uh, not really stable as it seems like over the last 150 years. I think that's what holds really an important important part. Yes, and just one technical term, speleothem is a stalagmite or a, a pile of rock basically rising up from the base of the cave due to, I guess, dripping in the ceiling. Is that right? Yes. 
Okay. Now, Ashish Sinha, I know from your previous papers there is evidence that long-lasting drought may have contributed to a major city being abandoned or even the collapse of civilizations as far away as Egypt. Do you want to talk to us about that, please? You want me to talk in the context of Indian monsoon or? Well, I, I think uh, let's let's broaden it out a little bit. Uh, what has happened in India could happen in other places. So uh, major drought, the role in collapse of civilizations, is it a factor? Yes. So, you know, one has to be very careful about it. This is a complicated problem of identification, uh, detection, and attribution. Same problem like modern-day climate scientists face when they – when media ask them that whether this heat wave is because of climate change or is it natural variability. So anytime we have evidence for massive mega droughts and collapse of civilization or society, one has to be very careful about if we can uh, pick out uh, tangible links between them. So in our previous study that was based in Northeast Iraq, it was pretty uh, clear to us that archeological data supported the idea that the Neo-Syrians at, at that time became too big for themselves. Uh, they expanded, much like U.S. Southwest uh, is expanding today, uh, and they are living in a dry place. So sometimes it has happened throughout our history that a short period of good climate spurred changes in population, growth in population, and that leads to unsustainable practice, unsustainable population growth, unsustainable agriculture. And then the bad times return and we are fine. You know, we get uh, really whacked by the climate change. So same thing I would say for India. We've been blessed that in the last 150 years, uh, or with as bad as sometime the monsoon has been, but for the most part, it has been a very stable climate system. And today, India is the second most popular country in the world and soon to be the most populous. And this population has a short-term memory. They have not seen devastating droughts lasting 10 years, 12 years like their ancestors did. But again, it's a problem with the short memory of uh, human civilization. So what is important about our study, or for that matter, any paleoclimate study, is that we are able to define the capability of a monsoon system that what it is capable of. And if we only look at the short instrumental period, uh, it's very myopic view. Uh, Only if we broaden our time horizon, only then we can see the full spectrum of natural climate variability. And in this case, uh, in Indian monsoon, we are seeing that the monsoon system is capable of of getting locked in a drought-prone mode that may last for multiple years to even decades. And this is something that not many people realize that in the scientific community. Uh, We still have this notion that being a stable system, at the most it can have one or two years of a poor monsoon, but it should return back strongly. So uh, to answer your original question, uh, Alex, that um, how these mega droughts have contributed to the past uh, collapse, it may very well happen again. And as long as we pay attention to the data that we produce and factor that into account. I think that's the way to do it, to to ward off any future uh, catastrophe. Tell us about the terrible Indian famine reported by the British East India Company during the period uh, 1782 to 1792. Yes, so this is a very interesting period. 
in this 10 years, their historical document says there were at least six famines. And two of them are very accurately described by various historical sources. And we have very good uh, confidence uh, that these were indeed drought-related famines. Now, one has to be very careful in the British period, uh, especially in the 19th century, that there were a lot of famines that were not because of drought. They were from uh, political action. There was from bad economic policies of Britishers. But 1790 to 1800 period uh, is particularly gruesome because these were drought-inflicted famines. Two of them happened. Uh, one is popularly called Skull Famine, or I think it's called Doji Bara Famine, and that struck most parts of India. And the other one was uh, Chalisa Famine, which is a, which happened, I think, within two years of the first one. And according to one estimate, more than 11 million people died in these two famines alone. This particular... 10 years were probably, in my mind, were the most uh, catastrophic 10 years in the recorded Indian history. Have the big climate models been able to accurately reproduce the records of drought that you found with what I would call geophysical records? Well, most climate models, let me uh, go back a little bit here. Climate models have a fundamental problem of simulating Indian monsoon, even with now we are in generation six of these climate models, even the most sophisticated climate models today, they are unable to recreate the spatial pattern of rainfall. Uh, They are getting better. But even for the modern day, uh, climate models are unable to faithfully replicate Indian monsoon. And that is not because climate models are bad or anything. It's just that the Indian monsoon intrinsically is a very complicated system. So there are issues with the climate models unable to replicate or or simulate the modern-day climate. Now, if we look at the climate model simulation for the historical past, there are actually some models that show that mega droughts in Indian monsoon can simply arise from internal variability. You don't need any external mechanism like El Nino or, or volcanic forcing. It is simply a part of the chaotic variability that can manifest at times uh, in a decade to several decade long drought. So there are some climate models, some very rudimentary climate models that have actually shown that. There is a a paper from Gerald Meal. Uh, I can send you the copy of that and you can look it up, uh, where he was the first one who actually uh, simulated these so-called mega droughts in the Indian monsoon. But more later generation climate models do not show that. And in fact, most models today are predicting that monsoon is going to get stronger because of the uh, of the warming. But the bottom line is that even the best models today are unable to simulate Indian monsoon really well. So I still have low faith in, in these simulations. Well, then you raised the question of whether the El Nino and La Nina, which are known together as ENSO, whether they drive these extremes of Indian rainfall or affect them. You have a section in the paper on that. What did you find? Yeah, so that is a a very interesting section. We wanted this paper to be primarily about characterization of Indian monsoon. And if we wanted to try the dynamical explanation of these droughts, the paper would have got very unwieldy. But nevertheless, just like we have historic accounts of droughts, we also have historic accounts of El Nino, 
uh, compiled by other scholars. So what we did was we simply looked at the historic accounts of drought and the historic accounts of El Nino and see if there is a match, uh, if the, how many El Ninos ended up causing the droughts. And what we find is that there are uh, anywhere from 20 to 50% of El Nino events in the past, as per the historical account, occurred in association with the drought in India. So that puts the association at around 50%. And interestingly enough, even in the modern day instrumental period, which is last 150 years, we have instrumental observations of El Nino. The modern drought El Nino relationship is never more than 50%. In other words, only half of the El Nino events actually end up triggering droughts. And the other droughts or other 50% of droughts are from non-El Nino related factors. It could be intrinsic variability. It could be uh, sea surface temperature variability in the Atlantic or in the Indian Ocean. So although El Ninos get a wide uh, recognition that it is one of the drivers of Indian monsoon, but what we find is that it, at the best, it can only explain half of the droughts. So where is the other half? And that is something we need to look more deeply, and that is what we will do in the next uh, phase of our research, is to examine what are other possibilities uh, that may create uh, such uh, protracted droughts in India. Well, can we conclude from your work that a severe, long-lasting drought is quite possible for India? In a probabilistic sense, yes. Uh, whether our data can say that next five years, I don't think our data is uh, appropriate for that. But it it highlights that the system is capable of producing mega droughts. Whether it is going to be uh, next year or five years from now, that I think is hard to tell just from this data alone. But it can we can work on probabilistic estimate and say that that there is a chance of such kind of droughts happening in the future, especially when you uh, superimpose the climate change, uh, global warming, and uh, and the other aspects. So there is a definitive chance. And so the last big drought in India, if I can say, occurred sometime around 1790 to 1810. So that's about 200 years ago. And what we find is that the mega droughts that we documented and which are also corroborated by historical account, they seem to occur in clusters. And these clusters can be 10 years to 20 years, 30 years long. And within these clusters of weak monsoon, you get these droughts. But interestingly, these clusters are separated by centuries-long periods of relatively fewer droughts. Uh, So you have in our record uh, 150 years interval where the drought conditions were very similar to what we have experienced in the last 150 years. Our data is not long enough. It is only 1,000 years. So we cannot really determine if there is a natural cycle here where these clusters follow some kind of periodicity. But there is a probability that something like this can happen. But our data is just not that of that resolution where we can say with prediction that it can happen next year or five years from now. Well, I've heard of mega droughts before. I mean, it's been discussed in relation to the U.S. Southwest, where the Aboriginal people there just had to leave their cave dwellings because it dried out for hundreds of years, is what I believe from memory. And then there have been talk uh, in Australia that perhaps the British settlers there arrived in a period where more rainfall was happening, but that may not last there. So, 
the whole thing about your paper is it's a little bit scary in that it, it makes it sound like every couple of hundred years or few hundred years, uh, a mega events that that we didn't plan for in our climate models and we're not planning for in our government could happen. Yes, and, and that is why sometimes these events have been called black swans because they are rare but not impossible. And the knowledge is powerful for some time that Southwest U.S. is capable of producing mega drought. In fact, we are living in one as we speak. But so far, this is our, I think this is the first study of its kind from India that show that even Indian monsoon, uh, which is fundamentally a different uh, system than what we expect, uh, what we feel in Southwest U.S., can also uh, lock into this drought-prone mode. So that is, I think, uh, that's the most important takeaway message is that uh, the advantage of looking at this long proxy record is that you get to see the full spectrum of the natural climate variability and uh, things that, uh, you know, like you mentioned in Australia, uh, when the Britishers were arriving there, uh, they happened to be coming at a time of relatively calm and, and good climatic conditions. And I will give you another example of Calif- uh, the Colorado River Compact, uh, which was signed in 1922 among the several states in the U.S., uh, that was the decade of abnormal high rainfall. So they di- divided the water uh, based on that idea that this is the normal rainfall in this region. And of course, now you know that what is happening is that almost all of Southwest U.S. is in drought here. And uh, there's hardly any water that is getting into you know, in Mexico now. Gayatri, what are your concerns for India, and do you think planning for such extremes is possible? I have a big concern uh, when I see this, uh, after seeing my record and studying paleoclimate for so long time, I have a big concern about India. And I'm really not sure how far this kind of droughts might be accounted for, for the future planning of the country. As uh, Ashi said that, yes, many of the scientists, they still don't believe that Indian monsoon can deviate uh, so long from its mean for a long time, uh, get into a drought prone mode. So it's hard to say from my part that whether Indian stakeholders would really like to account these kind of policies or not. Our guest, Gayatri Kathaya, is currently in India. Professor Ashish Sinha is in California, I presume. And the paper is Protracted Indian Monsoon Droughts of the Past Millennium and Their Societal Impacts. Now, the paper is behind a paywall, and it is fairly technical. But I ask you to check out my blog for more information about all of this, and that's at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you both for participating and really enlightening us about what's happening with India. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Kevin Trenberth spent 42 years as a scientist in the United States leading climate analysis for NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research. But Kevin, when I read your new book and when I listen to you in our talks, you speak more about the role of the ocean than the atmosphere. Why is that? Yes, so I started out as a meteorologist. My first job after I graduated in New Zealand was in the New Zealand Meteorological Service, as it was called at the time. And I actually did a bit of weather forecasting. But, you know, watching the weather go by, I sort of discerned that there were some patterns. And I wrote my uh, first paper about the El Nino phenomenon while I was in New Zealand a long time ago, back in 
1976, I have to say. And so that was a clue that there were some patterns of weather that were related to the interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean. And uh, all of the developments that have occurred since then have reinforced that view that there is a lot of natural variability that goes on. Uh, A lot of it is related to the changes in the ocean and the changes in the sea surface temperatures and uh, how they uh, affect the local storms. Uh, The tropics turn out to be especially important because of the nature of the weather events that occur in the tropics related to things like monsoons. Uh, uh, You can see that in Pakistan with all the flooding that has occurred. You know, this is a wet area, and, you know, wet areas tend to get wetter with, with regard to climate change. And so understanding uh, whether there's going to be a strong monsoon or uh, where the storm track is going to be across the United States and which areas are more vulnerable for flooding and and which are not. And this can affect things like water resources and hydroelectric power, for instance, in the Pacific Northwest. All of those things relate to the interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean. I mentioned that I was very much involved in the early stages of trying to find out what was going on with El Nino a lot more. And uh, and then, of course, climate change has reared its head. And so uh, understanding a lot more about what's going on in the ocean and also why has become an important part of my own research. And in recent years, I've collaborated with colleagues to better understand the ocean heat content and uh, the associated changes in sea level. And we've had, I think, some quite exciting work that uh, we have, uh, or research that we have uncovered uh, as a result of this. As we've talked about in summer of 2022, there were stunning events. Pakistan was roasting with heat, and then about a third of the country went underwater with floods. In China, extreme heat stayed for weeks and more painful heat in Europe and the U.S., of course. Should we say that oceans change so slowly that all these land events are not accompanied by anything really shocking in the sea? Oh, but yes. I mean, this is one of the things about, if you look at, for instance, this last uh, three years, the La Nina event. During La Nina, uh, there is uh, cool water in the central and eastern tropical Pacific and warm water tends to build up in the tropical western Pacific. But the changes in the weather patterns over the North Pacific and the South Pacific, the changes in the storm tracks, alter the sea temperatures in those regions. And so now in the North Pacific, there is a very intense, large-scale so-called marine heat wave uh, that is going on. And also in the New Zealand region where I am and the Tasman Sea, there is also a marine heat wave going on that has developed as a consequence of this La Nina. And now the fact that the warm water exists in these regions means that uh, in New Zealand, where we've had uh, the latter stages of winter in August, we've had a number of flooding events because there's more moisture in the atmosphere as a consequence of these high sea surface temperatures. And so the first La Nina was not like this because it wasn't 
there wasn't the marine heat wave here, but now there is, and we've had major flooding in our area. Earlier in the year, there was major flooding over the East Coast, and Sydney has been drowned on, what, three occasions so far this year. Uh, so the eastern part of Australia is a lot wetter in La Nina conditions. But this La Nina is certainly going to be manifested a little differently in middle latitudes than the previous ones because of these marine heat waves that are occurring. And in the North Pacific, there have been cases in the past where there have been major marine heat waves. One of them was, uh, what, about 2014, 2015, called the Blob. And it had major impacts on all of the marine life. It had adverse effects that were documented right from the tiniest organisms, the plankton, the phytoplankton and the zooplankton that formed the food for fish. And so it affected the, the fish. And there were an estimate that um, 100 million cod died as a consequence of this blob that occurred, this warm blob that occurred in the North Pacific around about that time. And, of course, as soon as the fish and uh, other organisms are affected, and there were other species as well that were affected, then that affects some of the other marine life. It affects the coastal otters. It affects all of the birds, the seabirds and, and gulls. And, and there were millions of birds uh, that died as a consequence of this. And there's been some fairly good uh, documentation of this and then uh, in the ocean, there were whales, hundreds of whales that were adversely affected by the whole food web that exists within the ocean. And so we don't hear a lot about this, but it, it, it does indeed have major consequences. And, of course, it affects uh, fisheries, has profound effects uh, in places that are dependent upon fisheries, such as uh, Peru and Ecuador off the west coast of South America. So we certainly need to pay more attention to what is happening in the oceans. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Many of us fear that the world will just keep getting hotter and hotter as the centuries progress, but maybe not, because you co-authored a paper released in July 2022. The title is The Ocean Response to Climate Change Guides Both Adaptation and Mitigation Efforts. You, John Abram, Michael Mann, and uh, other eminent scientists suggest Earth will stabilize when we stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. The planet will stop warming. I'm very doubtful about that. Could you please tell us how the stabilization could work? Uh, well, this relates to the concept of net zero, which uh, a number of countries uh, have signed up to, but it's a target. It's a goal somewhere around 2050, or in the case of China, around 2060, that we would get to a, a place that we might call net zero, which means the additions of carbon dioxide that we're producing at that time by burning any fossil fuels that, that remain uh, are offset in some way by maybe growing trees or, or uh, in some other way. And so the net amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is zero at that time. So there's no more increases in carbon dioxide. 
I mean, at the moment, carbon dioxide is increasing at a, as large a rate as it ever has. And I have to say that occurred even during the pandemic, although there were clearly fewer fossil fuels consumed by uh, commuting and cars and so on. Unfortunately, there was more carbon dioxide that went into the atmosphere from forest fires. And think of all of the wildfires in California, for instance, as, a, as an example. So at the moment, carbon dioxide continues to increase in the atmosphere. Uh, as it levels off, the heating of the climate system will slow down and, and even maybe, maybe stop to some extent. But the conditions will be quite a bit warmer, and so there's apt to be more water vapor in the atmosphere. That uh, continues to have a little bit of a warming effect. And the oceans are very slow to respond. They take, you know, at least 20 years to really respond. And so they certainly keep warming. Sea level will keep rising for probably uh, centuries, even after we stabilize the atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide. And so your, your gut feeling is correct that uh, uh, it's not over by any means, but it is a, a, the first part of the stabilization of the system. And there's, there's two aspects of a new climate. One is the heating and the changes that are occurring to get you to a new climate. And then the second part is the new climate itself. And so climate change, uh, I hesitate to put a, a word on it like bad, but, you know, climate change is, is bad uh, because it's disruptive. It's causing a change. It's causing a change from one climate to another climate. Now, maybe we could get used to a new climate, but as long as it keeps changing, as soon as we get, start to adapt to the new climate and you know, maybe changing our farming practices or changing what the farmers are growing and so on, uh, it changes again. And so the change aspect is one of the things which is disruptive. And that's the thing that we need to get a hold of more than anything. We need to slow down the rates of climate change. And then as the climate begins to change slowly, we can begin to adapt to it more readily. We can change everything that we're doing from farming and managing water and forestry and so on and, and food supplies and fisheries and everything, uh, we can begin to adapt to this new climate. And so stabilizing the uh, atmosphere becomes very important in that regard. But then the climate will be different than it has been. And so there will indeed have to be uh, an adaptation, as we call it, uh, to it. And uh, to the extent that we can, we should try to uh, assess where the biggest vulnerabilities are and try to build more resilience uh, to this. And a key part of this is certainly managing water. The, the times when you've got a drought and you don't have enough water, but then there are other times, as in Pakistan at the moment, and, you know, recently in Kentucky and also uh, in a part of Texas, there's been uh, some flooding. And uh, how do you save that water for the times when you're not going to have enough? And so water management, I think, is one of the key challenges for society as a whole. And that applies in every country around the world. 
That's a beautiful way to wrap it up. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, it affects us all now, and the reporting of climate change has gotten to a point where it is recognized that climate change is playing a role. But it's not changing these weather systems that much at the moment. The consequences of the weather systems in terms of rain and heat waves and temperatures and so on is certainly much greater. But the weather systems continue. El Nino uh, continues. And, and so it, it, it has all of these consequences that we, we have to deal with. Education, therefore, becomes a, a key component. The reporting is certainly a, a lot better than it was 20 years ago. But we still have so much to do in order to really get this problem under control. And the biggest issue is for the future generations, uh, our children and our grandchildren and, you know, the next generations. You know, unfortunately, some people don't care much what kind of a planet they leave their children, but uh, they should. Is it fair to say, though, that we've seen now, especially this year, some climate change, but we've just seen the very beginnings. We've just been introduced. We haven't really met. Well, I think we've seen some pretty good examples this year, and I don't it surprised the number of climate scientists as to how extreme it has been. Uh, it's surprised me a little bit, although not, not as much as uh, some others. You know, I think the, uh, the odds are that we will have some more years that will be closer to what we used to think of as normal and we will go back and then we'll say oh it was just an unusual it was just weather and it's gone away and we don't have to worry about it but we do have to worry about it because what we've been seeing over this past year is the sort of thing that we will see a lot more in the future and uh, and maybe even uh, a little worse if you can uh, possibly imagine that and so um, when we start to go back to things that look a bit closer to normal it's not over. From Auckland, New Zealand, we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Trenberth. He's a distinguished scholar for the National Center for Atmospheric Research and a leader in reports by the IPCC. Kevin uh, publishes heavily cited papers fundamental to climate science. His new book is The Changing Flow of Energy Through the Climate System. As I've said, that book lived on my bedside table all summer, and it's been my teaching guide. You can get links to find out more in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Kevin Trenberth, thank you for helping our listeners. You're most welcome. I'm Alex Smith. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org, free for all, ecoshock.org. Experts behind the Global Tree Assessment just issued their scientists' warning to humanity on tree extinctions. Here to explain why the plight of trees matters so much is the lead author, Dr. Malin Rivers. She is an internationally recognized expert from Botanic Gardens Conservation International. From the UK, Malin Rivers, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. We hear so much shocking news these days. How did it slip by that our friends, the trees, have fallen into such deep trouble? The trees have always been at risk of extinction, I guess. We have, there are lots of trees that we have known on for a long time, but generally what we don't, haven't known until now is the extent that the trees have been threatened. So we may have known one or two species or a handful, but now we have information on all of tree species in the world. 
So there are catalogs of beetles and of birds. Do we have a master list of tree species on Earth? We do now. So when we started this project in 2015, we did not know how many tree species we had around the world. So that was the first thing we had to set off to do for our global tree assessment. We had to catalogue the world's tree species to figure out how many species we had and where in the world they were. Your team undertook a huge global tree assessment, and the results are shocking. How much of the planet's tree cover do you think has disappeared since industrial civilization began a few hundred years ago? So if we're talking tree cover, so that's forest loss, that's a little bit different from tree extinction rates. So we can obviously lose a big extent of forest, but what we really looked at here is how many species that is that we're talking about. And what we found is that one-third of tree species are at risk of extinction. That that would be uh, looking at going extinct in the next 100 years or so, if nothing is done. That sounds pretty frightening, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, (laughs) I've worked on this now for for many years, and, and I guess it's not surprising to me, but what we're finding for the first time is having all of this information, we can give it to the public, and actually the public are now saying, oh my goodness, we didn't realize that it was it was that bad. And, and that's the problem when, when we're working on tree species. We have six, nearly 60,000 tree species around the world. So obviously it's taken us a, a long time to do this global tree assessment where we have a comprehensive understanding of what's happening. Whereas if we think about mammals and birds and Reptiles and amphibians, they have done these assessments before, but they are working on an order of magnitude fewer species and have obviously been able to do their assessments a bit earlier. So most of our listeners on Radio EcoShock are in North America and Europe. Is that where tree species are disappearing in the highest numbers, the extinction hotspots, so to speak? Not really. I mean, there, there are more tree species in the tropics. So that's where you see the highest number of of threatened tree species as well. But saying that, in Europe and North America, we also have threatened species, and we also have species that have gone extinct and are going extinct. It's not a problem that's only found in the tropics or on tropical islands, which is actually where the highest concentration of these species are. So it's a truly global problem. I would say probably in every country there are tree species that are at risk of extinction. What we are finding is the difference between these regions or countries is the type of threat that we're seeing that these species are facing do differ between these different regions. So we naively ask, what is causing this threat of a mass extinction of tree species? Yes, on the global scale, the main threat is habitat loss, and that habitat loss is mainly due to agricultural expansion. When I say the main threat, that is because most of that is happening in tropical countries, so that then dominates the threat when we look at this globally. If we look at this on a regional scale, so if we're looking at North America and and Europe, for example, the main threat here are pests and diseases and invasive problems or invasive species. So we can see that, for example, in in the ash species that are uh, at risk both in North America and in Europe, they're actually threatened by different pests in in those two areas, but but they're impacting those species a lot and putting many of the the ash or the fraxinous species at risk of extinction. 
Well, suppose the number of types of trees dwindles, but we still have forests. What's the problem with the simplification of the species? So that is really what we were trying to show through this uh, new paper that we wrote about the warning to humanity on, on tree species loss. And that is the fact that what's important within those forests is the species diversity. And what we're finding that if we're losing diversity, the ecosystem function is not uh, carried out to its optimum. Even something like carbon capture, for example, they have shown that carbon absorption rates are actually lower in monocultural forests than they are in, in native forests with a diverse set of species. And that obviously is true for many other things as well. So when we're talking about soil stabilization or you know, being able to withstand storm damage and things, we know that native diverse forests are much better at withstanding that and providing the ecosystem functions. And what we're always also saying is that each tree species has a function and if we start removing these tree species one by one, at some stage we will have collapse in that ecosystem. And are we willing to, to risk playing that game of Jenga really by pulling out each you know, piece by piece and just wait for the, for the tower to collapse? And I would say that's a very risky game to play. Well, let's talk for a second about trees and climate change. Do trees help the planet cope with our additional global warming gases in the fossil fuel age? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, trees, trees, we know that trees absorb carbon, so we know that we know trees are important in climate change mitigation and adaptation. Uh, we also know that they do that better when, when there is a diverse set of species. And equally, I would like to say that we can't solve the climate change crisis without also solving the biodiversity crisis. So, you know, these things go hand in hand and they help each other out. And I think isolating the two as two separate issues is, is not helpful for anyone. And, I mean, we welcome very much the fact that the conference in Glasgow, the leaders called for a stop to deforestation because of climate change, but obviously that will also have huge impact on biodiversity conservation as well. And we just really hope that governments take that pledge seriously and, and that will actually happen. Well, turning it the other way around, is climate change a driving force in tree loss? Yes, in certain places it is. I mean, we're finding uh, climate change to be an emerging threat. I guess it's quite a long-term threat, so we may not, we may not have seen all of the impacts yet on trees. Trees are also often very long-lived, so take a bit of time to, to show some of those impacts. But we are finding uh, climate change coming out as an emerging threat, especially, again, on tropical islands, uh, where we're saying, seeing both sea level rise but also an increase in hurricanes and storms really impacting tree diversity there. So it obviously these species have evolved with the risk of hurricanes and cyclones, but what they haven't evolved with is the intensity of it, the frequency of it, and also the lack of natural habitat to recolonize or to re-establish you know, themselves in. So you know, climate change is, is really exacerbating all of those threats to the species there. The scientist's warning finds an earlier work that said that tree extinctions, 25 countries have lost their forest cover entirely. I had no idea that it happened, although Haiti came to mind as a possibility. 
Do you have any other examples of countries that just lost their forest cover? Yeah, I mean, Haiti has lost, I think it's something like 97% of their forest cover. So that is, is definitely a country with high level of, of forest loss and also a high, very high level of, of threatened trees. We also have, it's not a country, but an area like the Easter Island, for example, there obviously used to be tree cover there, which is completely gone. Some of those other countries that are in, in that that report is referring to are in the Middle East. Some of those countries have lost their forest cover completely as well. The Global Tree Assessment finds the single largest pot of gold for tree biodiversity is still the Amazon rainforest. Talk to us about how things are going there for the trees. So the Amazon rainforest is obviously a huge area. It's spanning several countries, and, and there are actually the highest tree diversity is in South America. So we're finding there's a lot of trees found in that area as well. Again, the situation is obviously complicated there as well. But again, the main threat in the Amazon is loss of, of habitat. So basically deforestation of the habitat for agriculture, both in terms of soil plantation, but also a lot of ranching uh, and cattle production. These are the main threats there across that region. And what is the situation with threatened trees in Indonesia? Yeah, so again, Indonesia is is one of our other mega-diverse countries, as we call them. So there are a few countries around the world which has sort of disproportionately more tree species than anywhere else. And and Brazil in the Amazon, as well as as Indonesia, are are one of those countries. Uh, Again, there we're finding um, the main threats there, again, is is loss of habitat, um, mainly due to palm oil plantation, but also we have a big threat of logging. Um, so, for example, if we look at the diptocarp trees, so the diptocarp family of hundreds of species of trees which are providing timber for this region, they are highly, highly threatened there because of logging and also in combination with deforestation loss. So we just did a, a study in Borneo looking at those uh, the diptocarps of Borneo, and we found that 69% of those tree species in the diptocarp family are at risk of extinction. So that's like twice as many as the, as the global average, and, and, and that will clearly have impact not only for those species, but also for the forest which they're maintaining, the associated species like the orangutans and, 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 and smaller, smaller things, as well as the ecosystem services. Well, some Indonesian companies claim the palm plantations are forests too, and big forest companies in North America say they replant forests, even though whole valleys are now planted with just one or two commercial species. What do scientists make of these claims? I guess it depends how you define forest. Clearly, they are stands of trees, I agree, and I'm sure there are, they do have some associated other species living with them, but we know that native forests, native stands of forest are, and diverse such, are the best way to protect trees and also to protect associated species. So when we have deforestation in one area and reforestation potentially in a different area of a monoculture, those two things are not equivalent. And I think that's something we have to be really careful with now with you know, many tree planting schemes and, and companies are sort of selling themselves as, as being really good for the environment. But we, I think we have to be really critical here and say, 
are those tree planting schemes planting the right tree in the right place? Are they planting native trees? Are they even planting some of these threatened trees potentially to help with the survival of them? You know, and I think that's us as consumers. We have to make sure that we ask those questions. And unfortunately, the story of deforestation does include crime. We have illegal logging and the international trade of protected tree species. Does your report mention that at all? We are looking at timber trees, especially, and and that's obviously where we have a lot of the illegal logging or illegal targeting of of species, uh, which complicates the matters uh, for those species because it's difficult to get all the data on on impact and things for timber trees. But we do look at that, and illegal logging is a major issue for many timber trees. We do also have illegal collection for ornamental species. So we did a study on camellias and magnolias, and for some of those really rare species, we know that targeted collection is a real problem for some of those ornamental species as well. And as your warning points out, forests are critical for many national economies. Why should the business world care about losing tree species? The business world should care about losing tree species because it's likely to underpin a lot of the resources that they depend on, either directly or indirectly. Forests are supporting nearly half of the world's known animal and plant species and providing the carbon storage and accessible fresh water and preventing soil erosion, etc. Malin Rivers, can protected areas still work to save tree biodiversity? Yes, they can. So I think, as we pointed out in the report, that like protecting trees in their natural habitat is by far the best thing to do because they're, they've evolved there, they're associated species are there, that's where they're meant to be. So we are advocating strongly to protect species in the area where they're found. Protected areas are obviously a really good way of ensuring those areas are protected as far as possible against threats. However, we can do a lot more. So we found that two-thirds of tree species are actually found in protected areas, but we also found that many of those areas are not being managed for their trees. So they're probably managed for some other reason, so maybe for some threatened animals or maybe for, you know, their scenicness or whatever the reason is that there is protected area, but very rarely is threatened trees the reason for them being protected. So we're really trying to advocate to protected area managers uh, and inform them and educate them and tell them that they have protected, you know, threatened trees in their regions and really make sure that they can put in some action plans to also safeguard those trees in those areas. The new scientist's warning to humanity on tree extinctions contains ideas to get this message out. I love the idea of charismatic megaflora. How can that help? We all need to have something that grabs our attention. You know, and we can give people these scary numbers of saying one-third of trees are threatened with extinction, but it's really when we are selling these stories of trees or selling the stories of people and trees and that we can get to the heart of people and we can really get people to be motivated to make a difference. So again, like having the panda as the flagship for the animals, it would be really nice to see maybe the you know, giant redwood or a baobab or something really you know, to be the flagship and to carry the voice of the situation for trees. 
Well, many humans have an instinctive love for trees, perhaps coming from our earliest evolution. Tree worship and spiritual forests have a long history in many parts of the world. Surely we can't let these amazing, unique species just disappear forever. No, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's the other thing. We can put financial values on this and we can count things and put numbers, but actually the true value is in the the cultural and spiritual value it has to people as well. And I think it's probably through that more intangible value that trees play that we actually can make the biggest difference in, in converting people to for the course of the trees. As we wrap up here, what do you see as needed next for Global Tree Watchers? There are several things that we would like to see, but I mean, my first thing is just this, having this recognition of the importance of tree species. So having this recognition that we have so many tree species and a third of them are at, at risk of extinction. And the other thing I'd like to say, the other main thing is that we need to act now. So, I mean, there's real urgency to act for trees, and that's acting on, on a whole host of levels, you know, from governments to setting policy and legislation down to, you know, conservation organizations working for trees, but also on an individual level, you know, for people to act, you know, take an interest in your local trees, you know, support the botanic garden or local nature reserves, and again, make choices if you're going to donate money for tree planting schemes, etc., and make sure that those are done, being done responsibly. From the International Organization for Botanical Gardens Around the World, we've been speaking with expert scientist Dr. Marlon Rivers. And Scientist Warning to Humanity on Tree Extinctions is available free online. You can find links to that in my show blog at ecoshock.org, or you can find out more about Botanic Gardens Conservation International at www.ggci.org, ggci.org. Marlon Rivers, thank you for sharing this essential message with our listeners. Thank you for having me. That is it for this hour. Tune in next week as we explore investigative reporting into the big lie from fossil fuel companies. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Mm-hmm.